Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Matt Mitchell, the running editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. All right, so my guest this week is adventure photographer and videographer Ted Hesser. And if that's not a cool job title, I don't know what is. For a little background on Ted, after spending the better part of a decade working in the clean tech industry, he dropped the stability of his well-paying job and moved into a van to pursue his passion for photography without much of a backup plan. Since making the switch, he shot major projects for brands like the North Face and Mountain Hardware, to name just a few. And he's also had his work appear in National Geographic and on HBO Vice Sports. While I'm sure we could have recorded an entire episode dedicated to the expeditions Ted's covered over the course of his career, that's not why I had him on. Last month, Mountain Hardware released a short film called Chains of Habit, which focuses on Ted's struggle with depression and the ways trail running has helped stave off its symptoms, which we talk about in depth in this episode. Furthering the dialogue around mental health is something I'm really hoping to achieve with this podcast, and vulnerable conversations like the one I had with Ted are pretty invaluable to that goal. Before listening, I definitely recommend checking out Chains of Habit. It's free on YouTube, pretty short, and linked below. I also just want to say that if you're enjoying listening to the conversations I've been having on this show and find yourself wanting to get more into trail running, I'd encourage you to sign up for a Blister membership so you can send us an email and get my personal recommendations to help you find the right pair of running shoes. Check out the link in the show notes for more info on that, as well as all the other benefits becoming a Blister member gets you. Okay, let's get right into my chat with Ted. Ted, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so when we originally supposed to schedule this interview, uh, you were in Ecuador. So we were <laughs> we needed to like work around time zones and figure all that stuff out. What were you doing down there? I'm producing a documentary on Carl uh, Egloff. He's uh, an alpinist and a very fast, uh, perhaps even the fastest mountaineer ever. <laughs> So he's he's breaking a lot of records on the Seven Summits and some other peaks. He just did Makalu in under a day, which had never been done before. And uh, he's doing things that take weeks in in a day. Big, big high altitude mountains uh, like Denali or 8,000 meter peaks. Um, he's doing it under a day and breaking the fastest known time records everywhere he goes. So I'm trying to do a, a documentary on him and his life. And I just went to live with him for two weeks in Ecuador. That's incredible. That must have been such a cool experience. It was It was really cool. It was touching. He's awesome and has not really gotten the limelight he deserves for, I mean, I, I genuinely think it's not an exaggeration to say he's the greatest high altitude athlete of all time. Um, every peak he's tried, he's just smashed the record on that's high altitude. And he hasn't gotten that much recognition. He's not that well known. And so to to sort of show up and self-produce a film about him he he greatly appreciated his family greatly appreciated and it was it was touching um to try to help in that way so before we get into your own film i want to get a better sense of your background i guess as maybe first an athlete and then as a photographer filmmaker sure yeah i mean i kind of came into it um maybe the, maybe the opposite of how you just said um i consider myself a photographer and filmmaker um, more so than an athlete, but I have 
have been documenting athletes and have been forced to keep up with athletes <laughs> for a long enough period of time now that I guess some some people consider me an athlete. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think like your film, you definitely look look like you're in pretty good shape. Um, yeah, but yeah, I know that like you started off like in a with a background in like finance, right? Yeah, my background really clean energy. Um, I went to a good graduate school and studied civil and environmental engineering, really a clean energy program at, uh, at Stanford. So I, I got good grades and was able to get into a master's program on, on a scholarship there. And that led into a whole career in, um, in clean energy. I worked for Bloomberg New Energy Finance, which is sort of a global think tank for clean energy research, uh, and worked for some startups in the space, more focused on the developing world, providing small solar kits to rural East Africans. One company in particular called Off Grid Electric. I worked for them for a lot of years. But but yeah, I had a sort of foot in two different worlds. One world was this kind of career path. Uh, I don't know, more more traditional career path. And the other world was this adventure, uh, expedition, media world. They, they were both going simultaneously for a long period of time all the way back to college and maybe even before college. Um, and so at some point I just decided I, if I didn't like fully commit to the adventure media world, I might regret it later in life. I sort of the regret minimization framework. It's like, how do you, what might I like deeply regret late later in life? And so, yeah, I felt like I needed to really give this path all of my energy, all of my focus. And that led me to, to sort of dropping the career and trying to to freelance, and I went van life for three years and just fully dropped my cost structure <laughs> and tried to tried to uh, make it work. And it's been it's been quite the journey ever since. <laughs> but I love it. Yeah. What pulled you towards that lifestyle uh, as opposed to sticking on a career path? It's a good question. I I think I just. I think I'm just deeply attracted to adventure and I need a certain amount of adventurous pursuits in my life to feel satisfied. And I don't think I was getting that. I, I was basically going to the most adventurous style of, of, a, of a career path. I really wanted to just be a climber for a period of time where I climb every day and am, am active. And I think the, honestly, the depression stuff was playing into this and in some subtle ways too. I, I think if I'm not um, physically active enough that it's, I'm a lot more susceptible to depression. So I think that was, I think I was sort of unconsciously trying to find ways to structure my life around being more active and fit physically active um, and adventure photography, adventure filmmaking, you know, fits that, fits that mold for sure. Did you grow up pretty outdoor oriented? Not really. Um, I grew up in Philadelphia and my family moved to Wyoming in high school. Um, so I didn't really know anything about mountains or climbing until later high school years. And then as soon as I, I think I climbed the Grand Teton first with, with Exum mountaineering and, uh, was just hooked like right away. Like it. Yeah. Was it challenging to kind of like 
get into the outdoors because I feel like that's a that's a huge turnoff for a lot of people. It's just like not knowing how to uh, gain access into that like lifestyle and and um, those activities. It it was I I think I got a bit lucky with an early mentor, a guy named Jim Williams, who he taught me a lot about mountaineering and making good decisions in the mountains, but also how like someone who worked with him, who was sort of an apprentice Exum guide. There was one summer when I was pretty young where we climbed like every like technical route in the Tetons together. <laughs> we were climbing routes two, three times a week, big multi-pitch routes. And I was just following everything. Um, and he was psyched because he hadn't climbed any of those routes. He was older than me, Brad, and I could kind of keep up. And he wanted to lead everything. Like he was psyched to lead everything. But I, I didn't know. There was so much I didn't know. But just getting that volume of multi-pitch trad climbing in at an early age, like really, I was comfortable to try to figure lead climbing out on my own after that summer. Yeah, I think it just, I think I just got lucky with mentors in that way. And when did you pick up a camera for the first time? When I went to Nepal um, in college, I studied abroad in Nepal. I kind of made up a study abroad program. And I stayed with somebody who was a photojournalist for um, National Geographic, freelance, and some big publications like news publications. He, he was running a, a photography business out of Kathmandu. Um, Thomas Kelly uh, is his name. And he had all these photo books and beautiful, beautiful photo, like shot, he documented the Shadus more than anyone else, which are Nepalese, um, sort of spiritual, sort of aesthetic uh, contortionists. They like contort their body and do crazy things. But he, um, yeah, he had all these kind of deep subjects, hard, hard hitting subjects that he had documented as a photojournalist. And he had a bunch of photo books of other photographers that people had given him over the years. I just remember pouring through all those books, like being really inspired by the photography. And then I went through the Kumbu uh, on a solo trek. I was like a sophomore in college. And I brought just like a little point and shoot Pentax camera. <laughs> such, a, such a bad camera. I w- there's some photos from that trip that I just wish I had a better camera for because they're pretty cool photos, but they're, it's such a bad camera that uh, they, don't, they don't look great. But, but yeah, that was the first time I really tried to like, take photography seriously. And it took a lot of years actually before I bought like a real camera for myself. I think there was maybe five more years before I decided to invest because a camera and lens, it's pretty expensive to get a full frame camera. And I just like couldn't get myself to justify buying a really nice camera for a lot of years. And then I just decided this is this is silly. Like I clearly really appreciate and like this. I'm just going to buy a camera and try taking photos, basically try taking it with me everywhere I go and take photos along the way. And I did that. And that started to lead to some, some photos being licensed by magazines in the outdoor industry and some freelance gigs um, over the timeframe of years. But I kind of got to the point where while I was working for Bloomberg, even I had um, I would like save up all my vacation time and go on expeditions uh, where I had a, a gig. I'd be hired as a photographer. And I was kind of putting those expeditions together, helping put them together, and then functioning as a photographer while there. So I was starting to get like expedition gigs, but it would take like a whole year of, put, you know, of effort to put them together. And 
that went on for a lot of years before I kind of pulled pulled the plug and decided to fully switch career paths. What did your coworkers think? Um, they didn't really know what to make of it. They found it, I don't know, like cool, but like it was pretty foreign to that right. group, to that type, that culture. Bloomberg itself actually celebrated it at one point because I was part of an expedition that ended up as a Nat Geo article. I was on a trip with Corey Richards and Corey Richards actually took a photo of me that ended up on the cover of some issues of National Geographic. It was like their European issues and I'm like jumaring into a cave. We're, we were doing cave archaeology work in Nepal and uh, the Bloomberg, like the chairman of Bloomberg LP somehow found out about that. So they did some internal like PR around it <laughs> for the whole company. Like, oh, one of our employees is doing these things. Like how cool. So it definitely, I don't know, people, people were kind of okay with it that I was trying to do both, but, but also were just a little confused. It didn't, it didn't fit anything they were all that familiar with. Did you enjoy uh, your time living out of a van? I did. Yeah. I think it was some of the happiest years of my life. So simple, wake up at the crag or wake up at, you know, the photo spot you want to shoot the Milky Way at or sunrise or sunset. and. My partner, Martina Tabell, and I lived in the van together. She she also left her job. <laughs> she was working for Tesla at the time. And now, and now she's working for Rivian. So she, t- she took a number of years off and now she, she's, she's doing great. But yeah, we just, we went all over the American West, all over um, Canada. We, we would go to Shalten in the winters and just climb and be, be alpinists and um, I would take photos. It was all very simple and very fulfilling. Yeah, I feel like that's like van life is so heavily romanticized. I'm always curious, like whether or not that's an accurate portrayal. And in your case, it sounds like it was. There were definitely hard times too. I mean, I, I think it's also true that van life is overly romanticized, and it's quite a small space to like spend all your time in. But you just have to treat it as a vehicle to like be outside all the time, right? There's financial considerations. I mean, yeah, I, I think it's also true that it's overly romanticized, but we really wanted to live that lifestyle for a chapter of our lives. And it it was a little before um, it became like the rave. I think we were maybe a year and a half into van life when it started to become like a cultural phenomenon that everybody wanted van life. So right, right. We weren't going into I- it with that like expectation, I guess. Yeah, because the idea behind van life is like, the point is you're, you don't have, like, you're supposed to like be outside of the van for most of it. It's just supposed to be a vehicle that like, gets you to spend more time outside. Yeah, that's yeah, I've, I've entertained it. But I I have like so many creature comforts that I don't know I'd, if I'd be able to sacrifice. It's, it's, uh, it's sort of like a deep fast or something. You have to like, <laughs> cut all that out. And then I have too many creature comforts now as well. Like we live in a house in Salt Lake City. And I can't imagine living van life now, but at the time, it wasn't something I really cared about or thought about. So, one question I want to ask you, uh, one more about photography, anyway, is uh, I feel like every trail running community has like a designated amateur photographer, like within the group that always takes like the coolest pictures and tags everyone in them. Um, for people that are looking to kind of like 
I guess, profession, not professionalized, but like get better at photography and maybe don't have like any formal training. What are some tips um, that you used when you were starting out? There's sort of, there's sort of two things. Like one is developing your eye. You could generally say a photographer's eye, but much more important is like your own eye, your own style, taking photos and editing photos in a way that people can look at your portfolio and and sometimes even think, oh, that must be this person's photo because they recognize the style. That's the ultimate goal. And it's, it takes a lot of time to get to a place like that. So the way to do that is simply take a ton of photos, <laughs> take so many photos, edit so many photos. You know, Through that process, you, you really start to understand what you like about your own work or what you don't like about your own work. You start to make a lot of micro decisions and build a lot of intuition along the way. I would bring my camera with me everywhere. That was my choice. I'm like, if I'm doing something, my camera's by my side. It's it's over the shoulder. I'm always going to have a camera there, not just for for climbing or some sort of outdoor activity, but if I'm in a city or if I'm with friends going out to dinner or something, like I just decided I'm going to be that guy who always has a camera with him. And if something is happening, I'm going to take photos of it. I lived in New York. I lived in San Francisco. Sometimes I, <laughs> there'd be homeless people outside and I'd take photos of them. And I just, whatever it was, if it seemed interesting, if it seemed like journalistic, um, I would try to take photos of it. When I worked in clean energy, I spent a lot of time in developing countries for, for the, the pay-as-you-go small solar kits. And I would bring my camera everywhere and I would try to take cultural photos, photos of culture just unfolding, people, different, different ways of living, just always taking photos that I think helped me a lot to develop a style that, that is, is my own. Um, and then the other thing is to like study the greats or study not just photography, but art, you know, go to art museums, um, look at photo books, really try to dissect and understand what are the what what's the formula that someone is trying? Is it a compositional thing? Is it a, is it a color thing? Is it a subject matter thing? Is it some combination of those? Like where is it an equipment choice? What what's happening that makes that particular artist style that artist style? And and thinking critically about work that you find or paintings even it doesn't have to be photos. Um, it's all similar in the sense that it's it's two dimensional. <laughs> And you're portraying, you know, a moment or an emotion or a story. And so just studying all relevant works that are out there and being curious to, to all, all the art that's already out there, I think is, is really important. How would you describe your own style? My style, I, I really gravitate towards big mountains and people um, experiencing big mountains, whether that's through sport or just the wonder and the awe and the adventure and curiosity that takes place with big mountain pursuits. Um, I think that's become more my style than anything else. I still really love the cultural kind of eth- ethnography or ethnographic photos. Um, like the best version of that is probably Steve McCurry, um, super famous Nat Geo photographer. I love that style. I just haven't been as successful commercially with it. <laughs> so it's hard it's hard to dedicate as much time to it cuz I I have to make a living like I have to you know I have to find work and do gigs and so where where I found the most success is within the outdoor industry um within big mountain pursuits. 
is the way to kind of, I guess, gain attention as a photographer now just through Instagram? Is that like kind of the easiest venue? I think it was through Instagram over the last 10 years, maybe. I'm not so sure it is today. I feel like Instagram's in a really weird spot. Meta as a company is in a really weird spot. It's really hard to continue to grow on Instagram. Some people do it, but it fav- the way the algorithms work is they, they really don't favor like art and photography anymore. They favor things that, that aren't that. Um, yeah. So it's actually quite difficult to, to grow um, a photography account. It's a lot easier to grow a lifestyle account if, you're, if, if you have a lifestyle that seems really exciting that a lot of other people want to watch and admire and live vicariously through. Like That still works pretty well on the platform. But, but photography for photography's sake, I think is super difficult. And I'm not really sure anything's come around to replace it yet. And there's all sorts of weird things around just like the medium, you know, like needing it, needing to be four by five vertical. I was going to say the phone. Yeah, it's not really how, I mean, cameras are 16 by nine horizontal. <laughs> like they just are. And, and you shoot vertical for social, of course. Um, but a lot of the most rich photo work out there needs to be seen, not on the phone, needs to be seen larger, probably needs to be seen horizontal. Um, if you go like to see any sort of gallery or something like that's how that's how it is. All right. I think it's a good time to hop into your film, uh, Chains of Habit. And uh, for listeners that haven't watched it, I highly encourage you to pause this conversation, hop on YouTube, watch it. It's pretty short and definitely well worth your time. Can you tell me like what the genesis of that project was? Sure. And th- yeah, thanks for for all that. Yeah, basically, Matt asked me, like, what are my goals for the next year? Uh, Matt's the head of marketing for Mountain Hardware. I'm an athlete for Mountain Hardware. And one of the things I we had recent, my girlfriend and I, we recently moved to uh, Salt Lake City. And there's this thing called the Whirl, the Wasatch Ultimate Ridge link up that um, is kind of the ultimate test piece here in the in the neighborhood. And I'd heard about it and I, I wanted to do it. So I think I just sent him an email, like, here are some of the things I'm, I'm interested in doing. There were a bunch of things on it. And, and he said, oh, the world, like, we should make a film about the world. That's great. So that's basically how it started was some, some interest in making a film from Mountain Hardware. I ended up doing the world with, uh, with a partner, Thomas um, Bukowski. And we didn't film it when we did it. It was impractical. There's also permit complications um two-thirds of the world is a wilderness area and you're just not allowed to film in a wilderness area commercial or or otherwise it's just so we we tried to apply for permits and all this stuff and the national forest service was was just not okay with it (laughs) we were like but it's about mental health and getting people into the wilderness and they were like nope we don't care (laughs) you're not allowed to do it so so we did the world and it was great and honestly it was probably better that way because it just would have been, it's already such a big objective. It's probably the biggest thing I've ever done, honestly. It's very strange yeah. this in the backyard, but. What are some stats behind it? So it's it's a horseshoe. It's the entire um, little cottonwood uh, canyon. So you, you start on the left side, you gain 6,000 vert, and then you stay on the ridge line um, the whole way to, to the entire other side. I think it's about 40 miles it's about 30 plus named peaks and it's about 80 total peaks and it's about 20,000 vert. 
So it's, Ugh. it's a lot, it's a lot of her and at least a third of it is technical scrambling. So, I mean, there's a 10 mile stretch after the first peak twin peaks. That's just like slightly easier than Mathis crest, uh, in, in Tuolumne, but Mathis crest is like a mile and yeah, it's like 10 miles of low, low fifth class scrambling, but on an, on a knife edge kind of exposed ridge. And there's a lot of scrambling on the last third of it. So there's a ton of like high fourth class, low fifth class scrambling that slows you down. Um, some trail running and a lot of hiking basically. So it's a huge objective. We did it, I think in like 30 something hours continuously. So we, we were very, very tired. <laughs> and, I bet. and it's not that fast of a time. I mean, some people do it under 24 hours. I, some number of people have done it under 24 hours, but um, we were psyched just to do it, period. <laughs> it was a big, it was a big push. Yeah. And so how did a film come out of that? So at some point I was kind of planning, how would I make a film about the world and trying to plan it all out? And I just kind of decided at some point that it honestly wasn't that interesting to make a film that's just about us doing the world. I just didn't think that had enough to it to be all that interesting. And I, I kind of come from a place, at least on the video film side, where it really needs to help people in some way. Like there needs to be a message. It needs to be, maybe it's cathartic or maybe it's funny or maybe there's some serious message, but there needs to be like an actual value to the viewer, not just like, hey, watch this thing because we did something. <laughs> like, look at us, we did right. something. Like that all seems just not valuable enough. Um, so I was thinking about that and I was like, well, what could I do? And I I just decided maybe I should talk about this depression thing because I've suffered from depression my whole life and it's like deep in my family history and genetics and I've never really talked about it in any other context. And so it seemed appropriate. It was like, well, maybe I can make something artful and impactful around depression. And honestly, like I wanted to do the world when I was on Denali. And my idea was if I have something to focus on when I get back from Denali, maybe I won't get super depressed. Like what's, what's happened for me on these big, cold, high altitude expeditions, it's almost like a postpartum depression or something. It's like I put so much of my energy out there to do the thing, to do the mountain. And then when I come when I come back and then I'm not in that environment anymore, I get really depressed. And so part of me was like thinking about, I honestly was climbing Denali thinking like I'm doing Denali to train for the world. Like I was, I was trying to trick myself psychologically as if the real goal was the world. And all of that was just a, a mechanism to like not oh. get depressed when I came back. You said you were uh, using Denali to train for the world. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, I, <laughs> I kind of picked this up from Alex Honnold. I, I like happened to be parking my van next to him when he was doing solo of El Cap. And I remember like in his training for El Cap, he, he would say that like, he's just training to climb 9A or 9B or whatever it was, um, which has always struck me as kind of weird. It's like, no, you're obviously training to like solo El Cap. But in his mind, like, no, like he was, he was tricky. It was like a psychological trick to have a, an objective past the big objective. And so I was like, huh, that's an interesting insight into like sports psychology and how to, 
how to do that kind of a thing. So, so I'm climbing Denali. It's really hard. I'm telling myself like I'm doing Denali to train for the world. <laughs> like I'm, I'm going to be in such great shape when I come back from Denali. Like I'm going to do the world. You know, I'm, my mind is like already focused on the next thing. And part of that, honestly, a lot of that was just to hopefully not get super depressed after, after Denali. I've experienced that after big expeditions, especially high altitude and cold expeditions. Um, it takes so much out of the, the body that when I get home and the body's like finally able to fully rest again, and also just the lack of oxygen to the brain for extended periods of time, um, I think can totally trigger depression. There's research on this too, but I just didn't want to go into a depressive period, um, a depressive episode after Denali. So it seemed like, oh, if I can just stay active with this whirl thing, that that's kind of what I what I was trying to do. Um, no, that that makes a lot of sense, and something that I think a lot of like ultra runners can relate to. Um, there's such a thing as like post race blues or like post hike blues that a lot of through hikers experience where you know they have the singular focus of like achieving this goal and then once you do that it's kind of like well like what's next i'm kind of like left aimless and yeah like don't have a clear purpose in life anymore exactly is that kind of similar yeah definitely the lack of purpose and clarity after such an intense period of purpose and clarity um definitely contributes to it i feel like you know depression is kind of in some ways like nebulous like how did how does it like manifest for you what are some of the symptoms if you can articulate it yeah i can try i mean it's probably different for everyone um but what i'll say is like the best scientific understanding of it at the moment but this is always evolving but the best understanding of it is basically your brain's not getting enough serotonin naturally so a good analogy would be like imagine if if you're born or someone's born and like for every breath they take, they're actually getting like 50% of the oxygen that everyone else is getting in the room. And then imagine that person has to like compete in intramural sports and like live their life in any way, you know, that everyone else is living, but they're actually like receiving half the oxygen everyone else is receiving. That's obviously a disability. (laughs) Like That's obviously going to affect performance and affect all sorts of things about the body's physiology. And it's going to affect a lot. That's basically what depression does, except replace oxygen with serotonin. It, it affects the way the brain develops. You know, it, like with less serotonin, neuronal pathways develop differently and brain activity is different. It's actually like it atrophies the brain over time, which is what's scary about it slash sad about it. Like one of the hallmark characteristics of someone who's maybe been depressed their whole life without treatment is irritability or like emotional inflexibility. Um, It might be perceived as a lack of emotional intelligence. It's not actually necessarily a lack of emotional intelligence. It's, It's just a very brittle emotional brain. And that's because they've their brain's been getting less serotonin than it needs for a sustained period of time. So yeah, and there's, I mean, there's, there's medications that help with this now. There's serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs. Um, there's there's all sorts of treatments. Um, exercise creates serotonin and, and other, you know, dopamine, other other kinds of neurochemicals. And and honestly, there's a lot of really positive research in the area of psychedelics and um, depression because certain psychedelics can 
regrow neuronal pathways, um, not just around the serotonin receptor, but other, there's like three primary neurotransmitters. And I never remember the name of the other two. Like no one, Me neither. No one ever does, <laughs> but, but there's, there's really solid research coming out from like Johns Hopkins and Harvard and all these like prestigious places showing certain psychedelics can, can dramatically regrow, um, neuro pathways from from those neuroreceptors and more or less treat depression whereas ssris are more like an advil kind of thing it's like it it's more like numbing the symptoms or or like masking the symptoms it's not necessarily like changing anything it's just kind of masking the 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 worst parts of it um, which can be super useful especially if somebody's in like a major depressive episode to kind of help them get out of it but it's not actually addressing the root, the root thing. Um, anyway, so there's a lot of research and really interesting stuff happening around treating depression now. It's it's becoming more well understood. Pretty recently, still has a long way to go. But yeah, what are what are my symptoms with depression? I mean, it's similar to all the things I just said, like um, a sort of uh, a more brittle. Um, emotional flexibility to like curveballs that life sh- throws your way or um that that can be really the thing that hurts the most about that is just relationships because sometimes you know a, a relationship just just blows up in the process of of that kind of a thing which is the thing that hurts most about it and the thing that like makes me want to cure it and fix it as best as possible but i mean i get I've had really dark periods of time where I like can't leave the house. I just like can't get off the couch. I uh, am just, I'm in a completely different state, like very negative thought spirals, r- ruminations that just kind of go around and around and around and are really lacerating, like very, um, just the internal voice is just like very self-destructive and very um, harsh and, and is self-destructing. Those kind of things are i don't know what depression feels like for me when i'm depressed um it's not it's not a good thing it's (laughs) it's a real it's real i've come a long way though honestly just like owning it through this film process has helped a lot it's sort of like that that aa thing where like the first step of aa is to be like hi like you have a problem yeah, yeah i'm ted hesser and i'm an alcoholic like it it does actually help to just put it out there and be like hey this is something that i have like it, it yeah. all of a sudden it puts it in a place where it's like, okay, I'm going to really try to fix this or find ways to make my life work with it. Um, so it's also, I feel like that's also a way to like give yourself a little grace too by like yeah. naming it and being like, listen, like, yeah, maybe I'm not going to have the most energy to go socialize because I have depression and like, that's okay. Like that's, I need to like be able to work with that. Yeah. So you said you, you've dealt with this your entire life. When did you get like a, a diagnosis? When did you realize that like, oh, like I am different than other people in this respect? I think I, I think I was prescribed Prozac like in high school. So I think I had a diagnosis pretty early. And part of this is that my mom is a psychologist. Um, it's not like she prescribed me Prozac, but she's very knowledgeable of, uh, of a lot of things. Um, she's, a, she's a clinical child psychologist. So she's like <laughs> fully trained in all this stuff. And uh, I think because of that, I saw someone maybe earlier um, than like she, 
she was like, you should go see someone. And then I did. And it became clear that I should be prescribed Prozac. Um, so I took that like on and off through high school and college. I never really liked taking Prozac. I always thought it was pretty annoying that I had to take something. I was certainly not in the position where I'm like, oh, this is something that I have, kind of what we were just talking about. I did not take right. ownership over it at all until pretty recently. So I just kind of felt like, I don't know, like I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to take meds. I didn't want to, I just kind of blocked it out. But it was only maybe when I was in my mid to late twenties that I had what I would call like a first major depressive episode, um, which is pretty common by the research. Um, there's some really good books on this. There's actually one that, that details like famous historical figures like presidents and stuff that have had depression like Abe Lincoln or FDR and some other historical figures. And it is pretty common to have your first major depressive episode in your mid to late 20s. Something sort of genetically kicks in. Um, and that that was, I, I think I didn't leave the apartment for like months. Um, it was triggered by circumstantial things, but but it was like severe, you know, and I didn't I didn't really know. I was so in it that I couldn't even get help for myself. You know, I was just like completely debilitated by it. And eventually kind of got got out of it again and put my life back together. And that's maybe not quite as severe, but I've had like a few other periods like that in life. Always circumstantial. So it's always a little bit like, is it the circumstance or is it the thing? But right. it, it's never like clear. It's never black and white where you're like, oh, I'm feeling this way because I suffer from depression. It's always like, well, this happened and that happened and this kind of relationship thing or and then pretty soon. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's like it's a very sad like chicken or the egg. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of contextual and then your mind just like spins around all that and spins around all that. The research is clear that that's how that happens. Um that that's part of that's part of what it means that there's a genetic component. I mean, there's clearly a genetic component. A lot of like genetic diseases don't kick in until later years. There's a lot of like, you, you can see that across a bunch of rare genetic diseases. Not that depression is rare, but there are rare genetic diseases that just don't kick in until you're in your late 20s, early 30s. Um, and depression is certainly, there's genetic component to it um, as well. So, how did um, your, I guess, depression change or did it change when you left Bloomberg and kind of like pursued quote unquote, like your passion? I'm not sure it did. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. I think I tried to solve it that way. Um, I think I've done a lot of things to try to solve it without actually solving it. I think I had a lot of difficult kind of business interactions that I characterized around other things, but maybe had a lot more to do with my own behaviors because I suffer from depression and didn't really take ownership over that. But I mean, it was nice to be able to exercise all the time. Like I said, like those years in the van were really happy years for me because I was climbing all the time and I was out and like, I definitely didn't suffer from depression during those years, but it also didn't cure it. Like I've had periods of depression after that time period and it it wasn't actually addressed. It was just sort of, I was I was basically like exercising enough that it was masked, right? 
which is a great potential, like eating healthy and exercise. And that's kind of what the Change the Habit world film is about, is like strong daily habits can do a lot with it. Um, you know, getting sunshine, eating healthy, exercising every day, like all that is a really solid defense mechanism, but it's still not 100% of the solution. Um, it's just, uh, it's just a, re- it's a, it's a great foundation. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about how you landed on the name Chains of Habit because I think there's like a kind of neat like double meaning with that, right? Like chains connect things and like thereby kind of like strengthen them. Um, but they also can be used to like imprison people and imprison things and they're heavy. Yeah. Uh, was, was that kind of like what you were getting at? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there, I came across this quote. I don't know who originally said it, um, but it's, it's that the chains of habit are too light to be felt until they're too heavy to be broken. And that feels, the, the second part of that feels a lot like what depression feels like. It's just too heavy to be broken at that point when you're in it. You can't do anything. But if you like set the right mental habits and you, you can potentially prevent getting to that place. Um, and so it, for me, it just felt, it felt like a pretty accurate um, quote or a pithy kind of idea around depression. So yeah, totally. Like, and those things that you just said, like make as well, like make the, the poetic nature of it that much stronger. Yeah. I mean, the film, I was just trying to be kind of creative and artistic around the concept of depression and not be like clinical and data and scientific. And I was trying to be like much more poetic around it. Um, because I don't know, that's what, that's what films are supposed to be. <laughs> no, but I, I think that like depression is so like experiential that it like not, it doesn't always lend itself to, you know, statistics and, um, I guess more, yeah, like less abstract, like thinking, um, it is very much like almost like metaphysical in a sense. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's your own experience. It's your own mind. You know, it's, it's your own mind and it's worst form. It's your own mind turning against itself. So. So how does, how does running kind of help you stave off depression? I know we talked about exercise, but is there anything about like running in, in particular that, that kind of like elevates it, uh, over other forms of movement? Um, just moving fast in the mountains, you can get into more of a flow state, like especially scrambling or things that really take your focus. Um, for me, it like stops that rumination game because I'm just a lot more focused on, you know, where my foot goes, where my hand goes, like not falling off the ridge or something. (laughs) It puts it into more of a flow state and that's, there's a lot of relief in that. And so, yeah, running, like scrambling, things like that, climbing, just in general, alpinism, there's no room for the kind of stuff depression does to your brain. It just sort of, it just sort of turns all that off. And, but the flip side of this, like we were talking about earlier is if you, if you go do some big expedition and you kind of turn it off for a while and you like survive in some difficult environment and then you come back, it can come back even stronger. So it's like not, it's, it's not a cure. It's like, it's like finding a, it's, it's just finding a way to create a foundation of like preventative support against it. I don't know. Yeah. No, I mean, that's one thing I struggle with is like almost like relying too heavily on running. 
as a way to kind of keep myself like in good spirits. Yeah. Uh, cause, because running like it is, <laughs> it's one of the most like it has one of the most highest rates of injury of like any kind of endurance sport. And I'm, I'm always like, I'm always aware that it could be taken away from me at any moment. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering if you've thought about that and like what you have in place for as kind of like a replacement for, for running as like a, a coping mechanism. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I had knee surgery, um, five or six months ago now, I think five months ago. And, uh, I couldn't do anything for like three months, almost four months. And, uh, I got super depressed. <laughs> yeah. I was just completely on the couch again. And I was doing PT and stuff, but um, I got super depressed for sure. So that's the danger with over relying on exercise. What if you get injured? What if uh, you can't do X, Y, or Z at a, at a certain point? Um, I think like just being happy, healthy is, is, you know, eating well and like trying to get a, a base of, physical, you know, maybe it's just calisthenics or maybe it's something, you know, that just activates the body and, and keeps you fit is, is just super important. Like for, for everyone, honestly, I mean, I don't know if it's too much for a podcast, but I've been really hopeful. I've been, my mom's been sharing again, clinical psychologists, but like all these reports on psychedelics and depression and it's like breakthrough right now. Um, I mean, there's a bunch happening in that world uh, to to legalize certain psychedelics for clinical treatments of depression or PTSD. It's this has been going on for a while, but it's like pretty soon to happen, at least for some psychedelic compounds. And some are already legal, and that stuff seems to be more of an actual cure than anything because it's actually regrowing neuronal pathways. So it's sort of like regrowing the brain in areas that lack of serotonin has been like slowly atrophying that has me quite hopeful um and is not part of the film change the habit but (laughs) is i just find it really interesting maybe a part two or something like that yeah 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 the michael pollan netflix show has a lot of information on how to change your mind um yeah that's a great book uh that i read and i think that got me like really curious about potential for psychedelics like ketamine and stuff like that yeah they drop i don't know how they do this but they drop like a little bit of ketamine on a one of the neurotransmitters and they look at it under a cat scan or a microscope or something and dendrites like immediately form from the neuropath it's there's there's no evidence of anything else growing gr- brain pathways except this, which is <laughs> yeah. like, what is it's crazy. Yeah, it's insane. I I've been listening to uh, a bunch of po- podcasts about this actually. Like Tim Ferriss does a lot of really interesting work. He's really into it as on. well. Yeah, something I've kind of been playing with too is like after I finish a, a run, I'll uh, I'll do some like deliberate like cold exposure. Yeah, I don't know if you've read or like listened to anything about that kind of stuff, but it works for me. It's just cool. like hopping into a really cold, cold shower. Just, I, I find that like my mood is elevated for huh. two to three hours afterwards. That's awesome. Um, I haven't tried that, but yeah, it's, it's, I guess it's something similar to like the kind of like, you know, uncomfortability that running gives you, mm-hmm. uh, hopping into like a cold tub or something like that recreates that a bit. Yeah. Um, there was one line that really struck me from the film when you said that taking like running is a form of taking mental anguish and putting it into a form of your own choosing. Yeah. Uh, how did you kind of come up with that? I, 
so all that voiceover was was just an interview. It's cut up and edited, but um, I, I don't know. That just came to me during an interview. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, <laughs> it's, I, it's really poetic. I, it's true. It's how it feels. I mean, there, it's so hard to break out of that. It, it, you're like trapped in this sort of, again, negative rumination spiral. So breaking out of that is super relieving. And yeah, if you do something physically demanding enough, um, it kind of, it, it breaks that. Um, it, it sort of has to. So yeah, I think that's definitely a big part of why like ma- climbing mountains and running and things like that. I mean, there's a long history of people actually in high altitude mountaineering trying to get away from um, depression and or PTSD. It's pretty like, so a lot of the first mountaineers were World War One vets and they like, you know, had had just absolutely hellacious experiences in the trenches and needed to do anything to kind of like get their mind out of that recurring nightmare. And so they would go to super high elevations. And like the first mountaineering expeditions, I mean, so many people died, but they were like World War One vets and they just, it's just the way they, they were like, oh, well, you know, <laughs> but the, yeah, the purity I, of it seemed to help them in some way. Right. I also, when I also think of like depression, I think of like despondency and like maybe doing those kind of like high mountain expeditions or running a hundred miles is like just a way to feel something right for a lot of people. Right. Which I guess is like obviously not the healthiest relationship, but it seems like running and physical movement has such a strong connection to like mental health. Yeah. And I think it's definitely an area that I'm, I'm interested in. And I think a, a lot of people in our sport are, but yeah, I, I appreciate you making a film that like so explicitly like, talks about these issues because most people at one point in their lives will be affected by depression in some form. Um, and I think over the last 10 years, we've done a lot to kind of overcome the taboo of talking about it. And, you know, uh, more people are being open about like seeing a therapist and taking medication, but there's always room uh, for more discourse around it. So I really yeah. appreciated seeing that film um, and knowing that like, companies are willing to to get behind creators like yourself that are, are willing to put that put that stuff out and um be pretty vulnerable yeah appreciate it and I, it was cool the mountain hardware was was into it as well yeah it's not that talked about there's a lot of there's a lot of things in society that are being talked about more in the last couple of years which is great um depression it, a little bit but it's only really been in the context of a few Olympic athletes as far as I can tell. And that's awesome. Um, it just hasn't really made it beyond that. So yeah, it was, it was cool to to try that and a little bit scary too. (laughs) Who, you know, what if people don't like it or I don't know, it's weird putting yourself out there like that, but I'm glad, I'm glad I did. And hopefully it, it helped some people. I think it did. I mean, I've gotten a lot of really nice messages from, people who identified with it. Yeah. I think just talking about it, knowing that you're not alone, like people are not alone, that a lot of people are going through things helps. Yeah. That was kind of, it's a pretty simple goal really, but I think that's the best possible hope for something like that. The video is free. The film is free on YouTube on, uh, I think mountain hardware's YouTube channel. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, it's well worth your time. 
it's like expertly done, um, really entertaining and, and shares a really important message. So, uh, Ted, thanks again for, for chatting with me. Cool. Thanks so much, Matt. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Ted for the conversation. Thanks to Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from everyone here at Blister, please take good care of yourself, keep moving forward, and we'll talk to you again next week.